The sports world keeps spinning, and the local conversation continues. Now, Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Friday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you as we close out the week here on 1010XL and 92. Point five FM. We're with you till 10 o'clock. We're absolutely loaded. Coming up in our number one, Leon Searcy. You hear him every day on XL Primetime. You get him during the football season with me on the fifth quarter after every Jacksonville Jaguar football game. We'll talk with Leon about the combine. We'll look ahead to free agency. We'll do all of that with Leon Searcy coming up in about 20 minutes and later on in the 8 o'clock hour. Florida Gator fans. You start spring football tomorrow, year number two for Billy Napier. For spring football, we will go down to Gainesville. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, standing by to preview year number two in the spring for Billy Napier and for the Florida Gators. So a lot of Jaguar talk, a lot of Gator talk in our number one. And we are going to kick it off with a little Anthony Richardson talk every night. Here on Hacker After Dark, we give you a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. So at the NFL Scouting Combine going on up in Indianapolis, there is no question that one of the most polarizing figures there one of the most talked about persons there is Florida Gator quarterback Anthony Richardson. And I'm curious, and we very, very rarely do this, but what the heck, we'll open up not only the text line, we'll also open up the phone line at 641-1010 on a Friday. Because I want to ask you, Florida Gator fans here in the city of Jacksonville, both on text and on the phone line, 641-1010, What the Gator fan opinion of Anthony Richardson is. Anthony Richardson threw less than 400 passes at the University of Florida. Anthony Richardson only started, what, 13 career games at the University of Florida. It's more a story of what could have been than what was reality when it came to Anthony Richardson. And yet... Despite throwing less than 400 passes in a Gator uniform, despite only starting 13 games at quarterback in a Gator uniform, there are some mock drafts, including a couple this more or this week at CBSSports.com, that have Anthony Richardson going number one in the draft, number one in the NFL draft. You know, I first learned about Anthony Richardson probably before a lot of you did, and it wasn't by any due diligence on my part. There was not a lot of research on my part. One of my good friends in this building is Denny Thompson. He and I did Friday Night Lights together for a while. He and I do the Gator Bites podcast together, and he obviously now is the owner at Six Points Quarterback Training, and he trains Anthony Richardson. And he was telling me about this kid from Gainesville Eastside Probably five years ago, it was probably after Anthony's sophomore year coming into his junior year. That's when I first learned the name Anthony Richardson. 
Now, he was on a high school football team that, quite frankly, wasn't very good. He was on a high school football team that did not get a lot of exposure because they didn't win a lot of games. And he missed a majority of the games his senior year due to injury. So I don't even know people at Gainesville Eastside really knew what they had with Anthony Richardson. Denny knew because Denny, again, had been talking to me about Anthony Richardson for five years now. And then he goes, well, first he, I think he decommitted from Florida, right? And he committed to Penn State, I want to say. And you're thinking, why is a kid from Gainesville committing to Penn State? What is Dan Mullen doing? And then we found out how awful a recruiter Dan Mullen was. But at the end of the day, he did not go to Penn State. Obviously, he came to the University of Florida. But he didn't get on the field right away. Remember, it was weird. It was Kyle Trask, and then it was Emory Jones, and Richardson would come in and run quarterback power, and he would come in and do things with his feet, but he never really threw the football. And then for an inexplicable reason, because I think Dan Mullen was either A, listening to the fans, or knew he was out anyway and didn't care, Mullen basically threw Anthony Richardson to the Wolves in 2021 when he made his first career college football start against Georgia. And remember that two minutes at the end of the first half in that game? It was horrific. And that was the only game Anthony Richardson started that year. So we really didn't even know a year ago what we had in Gainesville, what the Gators had with Anthony Richardson. And then the Utah game happened. And he had some electrifying plays throughout the year. There is no question about that. But listen to this. See, if you go down memory lane with this, Denmark pulled up this doozy of what Anthony Richardson did opening night Labor Day weekend against Utah. Play action here. Steps up in the pocket, looking downfield. Now he'll take off and run. The whole left side of the field. Wide open for Richardson. Touchdown. That was ESPN on the call. That was Florida's arguably their biggest win of the year when they knocked off Utah on Labor Day weekend to start the year 1-0. And he played great in the Utah game. And then the very next week, he was bad against Kentucky. And then he came back and was bad against South Florida. Man, was he really bad against South Florida. But then he went to Knoxville and looked like a Heisman Trophy contender. He also had a great game against Florida State, all things considering. He had no receivers. He single-handedly kept the Gators in that game with his legs. Really the same thing against LSU. But for every good game Anthony Richardson had last year, he had a bad game. It was the ultimate roller coaster season. But again, how does a guy that threw less than 400 passes in college a guy that had 13 career starts, how is he this polarizing? Will he be an all-pro in five years? And Gator fans, you look at yourself in the mirror and be like, my goodness, what a waste. We absolutely wasted an all-world talent. Or will his up-and-down play in college follow him to the National Football League? It's a fascinating story. Because there is such a disconnect on the thought of Anthony Richardson. You got some folks that cover college football that don't think he's a first-round talent. You got NFL draft people, some of which have him going number one in their mock draft. 
somebody, some group is going to be very wrong. Some group is going to be very wrong about Anthony Richardson. And it'll be very interesting to see who it is. 641-1010 to the phone lines we go. Is this Maven up here on Hacker After Dark? Maven, go ahead. What's up? How are you? Well, I think he ought to be a second, third round pick, period. Now, I assume you're a Florida Gator fan, correct? Hell no. I'm a Tennessee fan. Okay. Well, interesting. All right. So, from a rival point of view, what do you think of him? Well, he's too inaccurate. Uh, To draft him in the first round, to sit on the bench for two years, uh, that's kind of stupid, I think. So, you don't buy the fact that he's being projected in the top ten by all these mock drafts? Heck no, I don't. Now, just out of curiosity – you guys did beat Florida, so I'm not by any means talking smack to you. Yeah, barely. We right. kind of let them imp- back in the game, were you but impressed that's by- usual for us. Were you impressed ahead. by Richardson against you guys? Were you impressed by what he did? No, not really. We just let him back in it. Just, all right. Fair enough. Very good. They just let him back in at Denmark. Richardson threw for like 350 yards in that game, but Tennessee let him do that. Um, look, I appreciate the call. appreciate the feedback. I love the fact that you were not – a Gator fan that chimed in on Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson played his best game of the year against Tennessee. Florida had absolutely no business being in that game if it wasn't for Anthony Richardson. Now, I'm not sitting here singing his praises, right? I just said earlier, he was awful against South Florida. He was bad against Kentucky. He was bad against Missouri. He did not have a good games last year. The Tennessee game last year was a very good game, in my opinion, for Anthony Richardson. Let's go to Orange Park. Let's get John in on Hacker After Dark. John, go ahead. Hey, uh, diehard Gator fan. In fact, I was born in Gainesville because my dad was attending the school at University of Florida. Um, But to sum things up real quick with uh, Anthony Richardson, who has, like most people say, great raw talent, and he's done good for the Gators off and on. The problem is it's off and on. And he should have stayed at least a year, even though that would probably drive some Gators crazy. But to sum things up, my coworker, who is a diehard Texas fan, and he hates everything Gators, and he just wants to rip on them, rip on them. But when I agree with him that Anthony Richardson is probably not going to do that well, that's the uh, that's it. John, appreciate it. You know, I get that sense too. All right, and, and I could be wrong about this, but remember I talk, was talking about the media, right? The media that covers college football compared to the media that covers the NFL and the NFL draft, how there's a disconnect. I also get Denmark that there's a disconnect with the fans, right? I think the college football fans see Anthony Richardson, and they they think like the college football media. But you talk to not necessarily college fans, more folks that follow the NFL and that, and they're drooling over Anthony Richardson, just like the NFL media is drooling over Anthony Richardson. So, again, that disconnect is not just to me within the media. It's within the fan base. Denmark, you're a college football guy. I don't think I'm breaking any news there. I, I would think you tend to lean more college than pro. Um, what are your thoughts as a Gator alum about Anthony Richardson? A uh, freak athlete that really didn't live up to the expectation that he was that was surrounding him. Uh, was the expectation fair? Uh, no, but you know, we all, you know, you have two sides with Billy Napier. People think that, you know, they didn't use him correctly or that, you know, he didn't, could have read defense and yada, 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 and can, you know, run an offense, whatever. And it was the same thing with Dan Mullen. If you remember last year, 
when he came in against Florida Atlantic and he came in against USF and was making crazy plays. And there was times that Dan Mullen, after the game, would say, yes, Anthony Richardson made a great play. However, that wasn't the play. He should have hit this. He should have hit that. And Billy Napier said, said a lot of the same things this past season. So, yes, he's a freak athlete. And when it comes between the difference between college and pro, the pro guys are just looking at the potential. They're looking at, yes, okay, he was with Mullen, he was with Napier. However, you there's a difference between how I say this. When, well, the when you, pro when guys go, think they can fix yes, the issues. Yeah, and, 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 and every single coach in either college or pro, regardless of what it is, they think they can fix them. Yeah, that, that's that, always how it is. That's because everybody's hard headed. That's the issue. All right. The college folks understand the shortcomings of Anthony Richardson. The pro folks think that, yes, he has shortcomings, but those shortcomings can be fixed. And when Anthony Richardson goes out there tomorrow night and runs that 40 and does that vertical jump and that broad jump, and he throws the ball 70 yards in the air, uh, Jason Cole, our guy from OutKick who we had on earlier in the week, said it, said it best. They will be salivating. They will be drooling over themselves. That's why you already see so many people say Anthony Richardson is moving up, up, and up in the draft. And it would not surprise me. Look, Chris Trapasso of CBS Sports was the first guy I saw that had Richardson going number one, had Indianapolis trading up to take him. I don't know if he's going to go number one, but if he has a good combine, like I believe he will, I don't think he's going to get out of the top ten. Let's go to, wow, Seattle, Washington. How about that on a Friday night? Let's get Caleb in here on 1010XL. Caleb, go ahead. Well, my take on Richardson is I'm fourth, by the way, but last year make a great throw and then he'd fail an easy one. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm wondering if it's more of a mental thing with him, if it's more of confidence. But he only has one year of playing time, so I could see it. Caleb, yeah, your cell phone's breaking up a little bit. I got the gist of what you were saying. That's right. You know, we talk about game positive game negative he had one positive game one negative game but Caleb you're exactly right it went down to series and even individual plays Anthony Richardson would make a great play and literally on the next play he would throw the ball seven yards over the guy's head here's my one concern about Anthony Richardson or I should say my biggest concern they were not going to win the Vanderbilt game on that Hail Mary all right but With Anthony Richardson, the game is over in Nashville. You have one snap. There are zeros on the clock in the fourth quarter. This is the last play of the game. And he threw it into row G of the stands. And I just, I I couldn't get over that. And it's been, what, three months now since that happened. You got to be smarter than that as a quarterback. I mean, the game is over, the time has expired. Once that ball gets caught, gets knocked down, whatever, that is the end of the game. And he threw it 10 rows into the stands. And I was just like, wow, that is really, really bad. But again, an NFL person sees that, and they see the ball went 70 yards. And they say, you know what? We can fix it. We can get him to put more loft on it. We can do this. We can do that. That's why I'm saying some group of folks are going to be very wrong. Those that think Anthony's going to be a flop in the NFL compared to those that think Anthony's going to be an all-pro. And there's really not a lot of gray area. My one thing for Anthony Richardson, and by the way, I've made no bones about this. I'm rooting 
for Anthony Richardson. Local kid, Gainesville, University of Florida, all that. And, oh, by the way, my buddy, Denny Thompson, is training him. All right? So I am absolutely rooting for Anthony Richardson. Having said all that, I hope he goes to a team where he can sit for a little bit and not be thrown right in. Because if he's thrown right in, like he was in 2021 against Georgia, that could be bad. I think if Richardson has time to sit and learn a little bit in the NFL, it could be a lot more positive for him. But if somebody uses a high draft pick on him, if somebody trades up and uses a lot of draft capital to get up to take him, they don't want him to sit. They're going to want him to play and play pretty quick. 641-1010 on the phone line and on the text line designed by Lifetime Enclosures. The Jacksonville Jaguars and the rest of the National Football League are checking out Anthony Richardson and over 300 other prospects at the scouting combine up in Indianapolis. From a Jaguar point of view, the Jaguars have the 24th pick in the draft. Free agency begins in 10 days. You believe that? 10 days away from NFL free agency. Let's talk to a man that's lived the combine, that's lived free agency. You hear him on XL Primetime. You also get him here on Hacker After Dark. Former All-Pro, Pro Bowl offensive tackle for the Jacksonville Jaguars, my friend Leon Searcy. We'll talk combine, free agency, Jaguars offseason, and more with Leon next on a Friday night edition of Hacker After Dark. Dark on 1010XL. Now. Hello. Another great guest on the Farrah and Farrah phone line. Brought to you by the accident attorneys at Farrah and Farrah. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. And just like that, the month of March has arrived. The scouting combine going on up in Indianapolis. NFL free agency less than two weeks away. Let's talk to a man that, well, knows about both of those in a big way. Former first-round pick of the Pittsburgh Steelers. You hear him every day on XL Primetime. That, of course, is my buddy, former Jacksonville Jaguar Pro Bowler, Leon Searcy. Leon, how we doing, man? Doing good, bro. Doing great. Leon, always good to hear from you. Thank you for taking time out. All right, so coming up here in the next three to four days, they're getting on the field. They're doing drills. They're participating in front of the scouts, and they're trying to make a future for themselves for the next 10 years. You did this uh, at the Combine and at all these all-star games in the draft process. What's going through the mind? of these 300-plus prospects up in Indianapolis as they get ready to hit that field here in the next couple of days? Well, what's going through your mind, Hack, is the fact that you're, this is where you earn or burn your money. All right? And, you know, I'm not, I've never been a big fan of the Combine uh, because, you know, it, it, it's like a talent show. You know, most, some people don't, 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 don't test well, and it's a lot of stress on these guys to go out there and perform in front of these scouts, these GMs, and these coaches. I'm a proponent of – Hey, watch my film. Watch how I played during the season. Watch how consistently I was as a player outside of taking me to an isolated place uh, where you're going to be poked and pronged and you're told to run through these specific drills. Now, you've got to do it because it's, it's projected that you do the combine because it, it affects your stock, your draft stock, based upon the – 
uh, your flexibility, your mobility, your speed, your accuracy, all those kind of things are in play. So it's going to be a competition. These guys are going out there to compete, uh, not only against themselves to try to outperform uh, their, their, their personal best, they're also out there competing against guys who may be rated a little higher than them. And these guys know, trust me, these guys know who the top dogs are and where they need to move and maneuver uh, to get themselves ranked higher than the guy that's in front of them. Because I was the same way. You know, when I, when I, when I came out uh, in 1992, I was the number one guard in the country, but I was the number two tackle in the country. And that offended me. Believe it or not, that offended me. I was the number two tackle in the country behind Bob Whitfield. So I made emphasis. I made sure that I was in the drills that Bob Whitfield was in to make sure that whatever he did, I'd outshine him. And for the most part, I did. Yeah, former Jaguar, by the way, Bob Whitfield, at the very end of his career, spent a year here in Jacksonville. You know, Leon, we're going to turn on the TV over the next three days, and we're going to watch these guys do all the drills for the cameras. But a lot has already gone on this week. What do the fans not see? What has been the process leading up to here at the end of the week? What has been going on that the cameras don't show? Well, what the fans don't see, the interesting thing is, is that there's a lot of mental gymnastics that's going on at the combine that they're not allotted to seeing. Uh, these guys are doing interviews. Uh, they're getting There's not only mental – well, I'm going to start with the mental gymnastics. There are scouts – there are assistant coaches, coaches, GMs who are dissecting these guys uh, to first and foremost see if they love football. Do you love the game? Because you got to remember, these guys are going to be millionaires. So the organization wants to make sure that when I give you this boatload of money, that you just not your 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 play and your desire and your passion for the game goes away. So they're going to ask you all kinds of questions about your upbringing, you know, your family life. What do you enjoy doing? What do you do socially? Uh, uh, have you got any issues? I mean, because, you know, they're making tens of millions of dollars of investing money into these players. So they want to make sure these guys are not only equipped physically to play the NFL at a very high level, but they're also equipped mentally to deal with the rigorous task of being an NFL football player. Former Jacksonville Jaguar Pro Bowl offensive tackle Leon Searcy here with us. You hear him every day on XL Primetime, and he's always kind enough to join us here on Hacker After Dark. Leon, you did this. You were a first-round pick, number 11 overall, I believe, in 1992. In your wildest dreams, when you were at the Combine 31 years ago, if I were to tell you then, hey, Leon, in three decades, the Combine will be a week-long event where thousands of media members converge on one city, and oh, by the way, it will be shown on network primetime television, what would you have said to me? I would have said you're crazy, absolutely insane, because it was far from that when I went to the Combine. Um, there was... Little to no media coverage back then. Um, you know, there wasn't any, it definitely wasn't covered on TV. It was definitely wasn't on TV. Very minimum media coverage. Um, we didn't have social media back then. Um, so people couldn't assess uh, a guy running a 40 uh, and, and comment on it. 
uh, back then. Um, you know what? I mean, our, our, dra- our combine was kind of like our training camps. It was just grueling, begrudging, and you had to do it if you wanted to get drafted. It was almost a you-had-to-do type of thing if you wanted to get drafted. So it was a little bit more strenuous for us as players, uh, but we were used to it because we had – you know, we dealt with the what college was all about, but uh, yeah, I would have said no way, no way it, it would be a star-studded event as it is now compared to when I did it in 1992. Well, this whole draft process, I'll never forget the time with you and Mobile when you and I walked into the Senior Bowl and the weigh-in for the players, and you're a guy that made Pro Bowls, played in the Super Bowl, is considered to be one of the best Jacksonville Jaguars that's ever played, and you were just dumbfounded and what this draft process has turned into. I was disgusted, okay? It was like miscongeniality up there. They was on <laughs> stage. They're walking around in their drawers. They're told to turn around and all this other thing. I said, what, is this a beauty pageant or a combine? You know, I was disgusted by uh, uh, Hagler because that was not what I was anticipating the weigh-in because we went to the weigh-in. You know, my weigh-in was they called your name, you strip to your shorts, you walk on stage, you turn right, you turn left, you keep your arms out, and then you walk down. This had lights and cameras and guys' picture and name and college, and I think there was background music. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was something. I just the look on your face. I've never, ever forgotten that, even though it's been a couple of years now. A couple of more for former Jaguar, Pro Bowl offensive tackle, Leon Searcy. All right, Leon, free agency. Uh, at the time you and I are talking, we're about a week and a half away. Take us through it. You know, if you're Evan Ingram, if you're Jawan Taylor, if you're Arden Key, if you're any of hundreds of free agents that are going to hit the market here in about a week and a half, what's going on mentally? Are, how, are you in daily communication with your agent? Are you getting the info coming in all the time as to what people are saying? Or are you just trying to stay busy to occupy your time and not worry much about it? No, well, here's my notion because I I was, I can remember I I can remember with someone my agent back in the day, he he told me uh, Drew Rosenhaus told me, nice guys don't get paid. He said that we've got to because when I was leaving Pittsburgh, I initially wanted to stay in Pittsburgh. All right, I gave Pittsburgh the first notion uh, to 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 pull the switch to get me get me paid uh, in Pittsburgh. And Drew had to get me off of that spot. He said, listen, you've got to make the organization feel that you're as uncomfortable as possible. As much as you love playing there, if they feel comfortable that you're not going anywhere, you're not going to get paid. So that's what we did. We uh, we talked to other teams. You know, I, I don't know if there's a, there's a tampering law that's going on right now where you can't talk to other teams. But let me tell you something. They're talking to other teams. Okay? <laughs> they are talking to other teams. And they're whispering in their ear, hey, listen, when this thing hits, hey, get, get ready. And Drew was doing the same thing. He was talking to teams, hey, listen, Pittsburgh, they, they, and the teams that they were talking to, I remember the teams specifically. There was Philadelphia, there was San Diego, there was Miami, and there was Jacksonville. And we were letting them know, hey, listen, they, all the teams were asking, is Leon locked in there? there? Can, will, will he want to move? And this is not. And the answer that Drew gave them was yes, yes, and yes. Even though I wanted to stay in Pittsburgh initially, he had to tell them, listen, Leon's ready to bounce. And you've got if you, if you really want to be with the team, you've got to make them feel uncomfortable about keeping you 
Because if they feel comfortable that you're just going to stay, then you're not going to make any money. You got to let them know that if I hit the free agent market, I'm out of here. And it's unfortunate that you got to act that way, but that's just about that's just that's just about the business of of being in the business of football. So when it comes to Jawan Taylor, Arden Keys, Evan Ingram, as much as they want to be Jaguars, and, and much as a phenomenal year that all three guys had to help us kind of resurge Jacksonville Jaguars as one of the teams to have to beat in 2023, uh, they've got to make Jacksonville feel that listen. I need a deal done or I'm going to bounce. Final moments here with Leon Searcy. Leon, let's go rapid fire. A lot has happened with the Jaguars since the last time you and I talked. Your reaction to Roy Robertson-Harris not only not being a salary cap casualty, but getting a new three-year, $30 million extension. You know, I'm, 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 I'm comfortable uh, with the decision to sign Roy Robertson-Harris, especially down the stretch. Now, you know, he was a disappearing act for the mass majority of the time at Jacksonville outside the, la- the last part of last year's season. Down the stretch, I think he was disruptive. Um, he was a, a space mover. He was a tackle for loss guy, a quarterback hit guy. Uh, 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 he, he came into his own leadership-wise with a young, uh, very vulnerable defensive front. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I'm comfortable with the fact that they, they're keeping their core guys together. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I don't have a problem. With, but, but see, I'm going to have to see more of what I saw down the stretch uh, moving forward. And I think Jacksonville is comfortable with the fact that this guy maybe for a year and a half didn't play, you know, up to par. But now he's got his mojo back, and maybe he's going to give us a lot more of what we saw in the second half of the season uh, for the next remainder three years. He's going to be a Jaguar. Leon, in regards to Jawan Taylor, a position that you know very well, the word is 16 to 17 million is going to be what he could get on the open market yearly. Is he worth that? Would you pay that? Um, yes. And yes, I, I I have I have been converted to a Juwan. Now I'm concerned that outside of his rookie year and his last year, um, you know, he played like a stud. But I'm gonna tell you what I would do, and it's not going to be a popular what I'm going to say. I say I will wait till Cam is healthy, cut him, move Walker to left, and him at right, and and the money that you spend on Cam. You, you're giving it to Jawan by cutting Cam um, at the beginning of the season. Interesting. All right, well, that's the first time I've heard somebody say that. Let me ask you as we wrap up. If Jawan leaves in free agency, Cam comes back at left tackle, Walker Little at right tackle, are you comfortable with that? Um, not not really, but, I mean, everybody is assessing that if you, you know, just move Walker to right tackle. Um I don't think I don't think he's a right tackle. And listen, just my historic not historically, but just from from my dealings with right tackles and left tackles, most left tackles want to play left tackle. They don't want to be moved to right. Most right tackles don't want to be moved to left. I mean, it's just you're a lot more comfortable being who you are instead of having to be something else. So, I mean, I know that's a lot of people saying, well, if Javon leaves, we just move Walker to right and move Cam uh, back to left. And would I be okay with it? Yeah, I guess I will. Um, 
but I don't know. I, what I saw down the stretch where Walker at left and Juwan at right uh, was a lot more appeasing to me than it was early on in the season when they struggled. Leon, final question. If Evan Ingram gets the franchise tag, which is certainly a possibility, <laughs> is he going to be okay with that? No. No player is comfortable with the franchise tag. Uh, I don't even know why they collectively bargained for that. They gave the owners all the power uh, in play to franchise. Because my, my notion with the franchise tag is this, is that you give the ownership and the organization more time when they had all season to determine whether they wanted to sign a guy now. And the guy having to go through a season unprotected contractually where he could get hurt and lose money. I mean, all the burden, the, the, the burden is on the player, not on the organization. But and that, that takes away that burden. I mean, when you franchise tag him, now you, you limit his ability to go into the free market. And if you wanted them out of the free market, you would have paid them before the season started or during the season or when after the season. It just, in my opinion, it just gives the ownership more time, more time. And then, you know, it limits the player's ability to hit the free market, which they, they usually like to do and see what their market value is. And we'll you know, always be pro player. And we'll know about that franchise tag with Ingram in just a couple of days. The deadline is Tuesday, March yep. the 7th. Leon Searcy, always appreciate you, my man. Thank you very much. Let's talk again after free agency. We'll see how the Jaguars fared. All right, bro. There you go, Leon Searcy. You get him every day on XL Primetime. He's always kind enough to join us here as well on Hacker After Dark. And, you know, he made an interesting point. And I did this, and as a result of chatting with Leon, I put a poll question up earlier. 200 people voted in it. If you had the choice of Cam Robinson at left tackle and Walker Little at right tackle, or you could have Walker Little at left tackle and Jawan Taylor at right tackle, so either Cam and Walker or Walker and Jawan, what do you want? 200 people voted, so let's see, 69% said Walker and Jawan. 31% said Cam and Walker. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I can tell you that that to me sounds like a better option, right? I mean, Jawan Taylor has been injury-free his entire career. He started every game in his four-year career. Walker Little had an ACL in college, but he's been healthy in the NFL in two years. Cam Robinson's entering year seven. He's got an ACL in his past and now a torn meniscus. And you just wonder at some point, will Cam Robinson continue to be the player that he's been? I liked what I saw from Walker Little at left tackle and Jawan Taylor at right tackle. That's when the Jaguars really went on that winning streak. Look, I think Cam Robinson's a good player. And I'm not saying they went on the winning streak because Walker went in there for Cam, but they certainly didn't lose a beat when Cam left, I guess is the point. Cam left at the end of that Dallas game, and that was the second of those six consecutive wins. They won four in a row with Walker in there at left tackle, including the AFC South Championship game and including the playoff win against the Los Angeles Chargers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. As we know, it does certainly appear Evan Ingram – will be getting franchised. By the way, franchise tags reportedly coming all over the National Football League. Deron Payne in Washington, Evan Ingram here in Jacksonville, and today it appears Josh Jacobs in Las Vegas and Tony Pollard in Dallas. A couple of running backs 
will both be franchised if long-term deals cannot be reached by next Tuesday, March the 7th. More on the Jaguars, more on NFL free agency. That comes up in the 9 o'clock hour. Coming up next, Florida Gator fans. Tomorrow, your Florida Gators are on the football field. Spring football, spring practice number one as the spring season. Number two for Billy Napier commences. Graham Mertz, Jack Miller, who's the quarterback? What about some of the returning guys? What are some of the storylines going into spring ball down in Gainesville for the Gators? Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com. He's one of our guys in Gainesville. He joins us next. Hacker After Dark on a Friday night. Let's talk Florida spring football here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. 1010XL. Now. Another interview on the Farrah and Farrah phone line. Brought to you by the accident attorneys at Farrah and Farrah. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. You know, don't look now. That calendar keeps moving. And spring football for the Florida Gators begins on Saturday. That is hard to believe. Spring number two for head coach Billy Napier. And we'll see what they got this year. Certainly a lot of questions heading into spring 2023. Let's go to Gainesville. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com. He's one of our guys in Gainesville, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Jacob, how we doing? I'm good, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Glad to be back. Uh, how are you? Jacob, we're good, man. Excited for spring ball. And, and look, it's an interesting type of excitement because there's so many unanswered questions, but it appears, I guess, Jacob, that the Graham Mertz era of Florida Gator football is about to commence on Saturday. What is the talk over there heading into spring? This appears on the surface to be Graham Mertz's job. It's actually, it's, it's interesting, Ryan, that you go there first. I will give uh, your listeners kind of a sneak preview uh, that will appear on my website later. So uh, insider stuff here. Uh, I spoke with Billy Napier last Friday, and he told me that there is no preferred starter heading into the spring. He's anticipating a true quarterback battle. Uh, he spoke very highly of Jack Miller, who Florida fans uh, are familiar with from that bowl game loss to Oregon State. Uh, wasn't pretty, but to Miller's credit and to Florida's credit, they were down a lot of talent. Uh, Billy Napier still likes Jack Miller quite a bit, and uh, it sounds like there really will be kind of a rep share to start at the outset of spring ball, and we'll see where it goes from there. So I don't know anymore that this is Graham Mertz's team. We're going to find out. You know, it's interesting you say that because in, in listening to you talk, a couple of things jump to mind. Number one, if I'm Graham Mertz um, and I'm committing to the University of Florida, I better have been given some reasoning, right, as to why to come to Gainesville. That's number one. But number two, let's assume what Napier told you is correct, and I believe, Billy, to be truthful with you, and let's say it is a competition. Jacob, that means it's a competition between a transfer from the Big Ten who has one year of eligibility left and a guy who has one start in college football that went horrible in Jack Miller. I mean, that's... That's a significant problem where Florida is right now in that quarterback room. I don't know that it's a significant problem. I think that it's interesting because Billy Napier essentially said that he's not going to hand 
the starting quarterback job to a newcomer. He's, it, it's not that easy. It's always going to be a competition. Uh, and I do take him at his word. I really do think that that's how he operates. Uh, I do think that he genuinely does want to see competition between the two quarterbacks. And at the end of the day, look, if Jack Miller doesn't emerge as a guy who's ready to be the starting quarterback at the University of Florida, for the reasons that you just outlined, Florida does have Graham Mertz in the fold. They do anticipate him being a positive addition to the team. And then it's his room. But I do think that Florida will leave it open to the two quarterbacks to actually earn that spot. And if Jack Miller proves that he's more effective than Graham Mertz, then so be it. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, covering the Florida Gators. He's with us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jacob, maybe I'm overthinking this. You tell me. But you mentioned two guys there, Jack Miller and Graham Mertz. We know Max Brown is the other guy on scholarship, the third quarterback, but he's busy with baseball right now, so who knows how much he's even going to participate in the spring. It's the competition between those two, absolutely. But is there a competition with an unknown guy, meaning that if neither Miller or Mertz really prove themselves in spring, then Florida's got to go out in the May portal and find somebody, do they not? Well, I think that that's going to happen either way, Ryan. Billy Napier told us a couple weeks ago that the plan is to add a fourth scholarship quarterback to the room before the start of the season. Uh, he said that his team should operate with no fewer than four scholarship quarterbacks at any given time. They currently have three, you named them, uh, Graham Mertz, Max Brown, and Jack Miller. So they'll need another quarterback regardless, whether or not they take somebody who's more of a project type, uh, younger, three, maybe even four years of eligibility left, depending on their situation, somebody that they can develop or somebody who's more ready to step into a starting role remains to be seen. But we can already guarantee without question that Florida will attempt to add another quarterback via the transfer portal. Jacob, no matter who the quarterback is, man, they got two really good running backs on that roster and Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne. Uh, my concern is, I suppose, the offensive line last year, a lot of those guys are gone, right? Osiris Torrance and Garage are going to the draft. We know Ethan White transferred, Tarquin's gone. So a lot of the big uglies on the O-line have left the program, either to graduation or transfer. How is the O-line looking? Because you know as well as I do, you can have great running backs. If you don't have an offensive line in front of them, it doesn't matter all that much. So what is the O-line shaping up as right now? I, I would call it promising. I think there are a lot of things that we're going to need to see in the spring and maybe even into the fall to really have full confidence in the unit. But I do think they're headed in a good direction. Yes, they lost a whole bunch of talent. That's no, There's no question there. Uh, they did add some good players, though. Damian George from Alabama, Micah Masua from Baylor, and Keontae Goodwin from Kentucky. I like all three of those guys, particularly Micah Masua, one of the better run-blocking guards in the country last season at Baylor. That's something that Florida needed to replace when they lost Osiris Torrance this offseason, and that's a really good plug-and-play option. Uh, Damian George, a guy who needs a little bit more work, I think, to be fully starter caliber, but I think Florida has the depth in the room to allow him to be able to kind of take those steps over the next couple of weeks and again into the fall. And then you have a guy, Keontae Goodwin, who is a true project, but a freak athlete, former five-star prospect, uh, moves really well for his size, he was over 400 pounds at one point. Has cut a lot of weight. I believe he's in the 350s or so. Six foot seven guy. Uh, just an impressive athlete. So 
Did Florida lose a lot? Yes. Did they bring in guys who are talented, athletic, uh, kind of fitting the mold of what it is they want their offensive line to look like? I do think so. Uh, and so I think the, the unit is in a good spot. There's a lot of things we need to see, though. They need to obviously pan out. Jacob, I was talking to an offensive line um, video guy. He studies linemen all over the country. And with Masula from Baylor, he said potentially, potentially, this year's Osiris Torrance. Uh, do you believe that? Could that be possible? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not going to put the expectations on somebody of uh, being a consensus All-American uh, and a first-team All-SEC player, but I do think that Masua will be an adequate, at minimum, replacement for Osiris Torrance. He's a phenomenal run blocker. Uh, I think that Florida has the offensive line coaching infrastructure with guys like Rob Sale and Darnell Stapleton and, and the, the graduate assistants behind them. Uh, I do think that they will be able to coach him up to be a very, very solid replacement for a guy who was truly phenomenal, one of the best players in the country at his position last year, if not the best. Uh, to replace that's a lot, but I do think that Florida has the right guy to try and do it. A couple of more for Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, covering the Florida Gators. Jacob, quickly, the skill positions outside of running back. Ricky Pearsall's back. Um, Justin Shorter's gone. I, I mean, other than Jonathan Odom, I'm not really sure what they have at tight end. I mean, what are we thinking with the skill positions? Uh, I have some questions about these groups. I, I, I think that receiver has the potential to be pretty good. Uh, we obviously need to see who Florida's going to hire at receiver's coach before spring. I would think they want to try and get somebody in there quickly. Uh, Ricky Pearsall is a very good returner. I think that he will, again, lead Florida in receiving yards and perhaps touchdowns. Uh, just a good leader, an athletic guy, uh, and somebody who has proven now at the SEC level that he can succeed. Uh, and behind him, people are going to need to step up. Xavier Henderson returns to the team, was very good last year at times. Uh, I, he'll obviously see an expanded role. And, and beyond that, I have to kind of wait and see. Uh, and tight end, you mentioned it. The depth is very thin. Uh, Dante Zanders, Keon Zipperer returned to the team. Uh, Tony Livingston, the only newcomer to the unit. It was a group that wasn't great last year. And, and you mentioned Odom. Odom's out with a torn ACL. Odom's out for a while. So uh, I, tight end is definitely the biggest question mark for me on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, I actually had forgotten that Odom tore his ACL. That's a good point. They got issues at tight end, no question about that. That's a shame for Odom because he really started showing some things against Florida State in the season finale last year. Quickly, Jacob, to the defensive side of the ball. A brand-new coordinator, right? I mean, Patrick Toney leaves in the middle of the night to go to Arizona, and uh, you got to find somebody, so they find a 29-year-old in Austin Armstrong. Now, maybe this is a get-off-my-lawn moment. I'm considered, Jacob, to be one of the oldest 39-year-olds on the planet, but a 29-year-old running a defense in the Southeastern Conference, any issue for you with that? No, I'm, I'm intrigued by the hire. Do I think that it comes with its risks because you hired somebody who is – entirely inexperienced he, he has two years of defensive coordinator experience in the Sun Belt which went well but but still it, it's really truly not a lot of time uh young hasn't really kind of cut his teeth very much in the industry yet but is so promising there have been nothing but good reviews from the people who I've spoken to from Billy Napier who I spoke with directly the day after they hired uh Armstrong and just such rave reviews. Nick Saban has spoken so highly of him. He called his defense at Southern Mississippi an SEC-caliber defense. Uh, I think it really does have the potential to succeed. 
And if it does, think about what Florida just did. Brought in a young, potentially relatable coach for recruits, somebody who they can look at as more of a, a peer than such a, you know, in a coaching role, somebody who can really be a friend to them when needed. And that matters in recruiting. That helps you establish connections. And so, uh, you know, look, is it a risk? Sure. It comes with its risks to hire somebody so inexperienced. But if it works out, if it does pan out the way Florida sees it possibly could, I think it's a great hire. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com. Jacob, as we wrap up quickly, uh, three coaches leave a week and a half before spring football. Concerning at all? A coincidence? How would you describe that? It's the state of college football, Ryan. I think that coaches are uh, trying to get out of the NIL situations that they might have to deal with. Billy Napier told me that himself, uh, basically said that this is the landscape now. Coaches are going to try to move on to the NFL because it's just a more stable environment. And things are figured out. You know exactly what needs to happen. So uh, with the NFL calendar being moved up uh, with the 18th week of the regular season, it's a little late in the college football calendar for this to happen. Uh, but is it something that could become more normal? Maybe. We're, we're going to have to wait and see. I'm, I'm not alarmed by it, but I do think that we need to see who they replace the lost coaches with at this point. All right, Jacob. Finally, earlier this week, Florida, who's had a bad basketball season, not all their fault. The injury to Castleton basically ended the year, yet they circled the wagons and went up to Athens and beat Mike White, and Todd Golden sweeps Mike White his first year in Gainesville. That was probably a little ointment on the wound, right? Not the year everybody wanted, but the fact that Todd Golden did beat Mike White twice, that's got to make Florida basketball feel at least a little bit positive going into the offseason. There's no question. It's always good to beat your rival twice. You know, that's the bragging rights count for something. And so uh, that that absolutely matters. I think that that was a good way to kind of embark on the end of the season for Todd Golden, which, like you said, has not gone exactly to plan. It hasn't been a perfect year, uh, be it sometimes coaching related things, uh, unfortunate injuries, you know, taking down parts of the team. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's been a difficult season. I personally, and I said this, I believe, last time I was on the show with you, I think that you look at things like the win over Tennessee, the wins now over Georgia, uh, the Mississippi State win on the road is a good one in hindsight. Uh, there were moments throughout this season where Todd Golden, I think, proved that he has the potential to be very successful in this job. And now we're going to need to see what the offseason looks like. How does he recruit the transfer portal? How does he go after freshmen potentially to build off of the two signee class he currently has in 2023? Where does the 2024 class uh, start to shape up? Where does it go in these next couple months? And, and depending on those things, I think we can continue to kind of form an opinion. But I like the way that Florida has started, and it's a nice bow to put on the season to sweep the rival Georgia. Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, covering the Florida Gators. Jacob, appreciate the time to check out Jacob's work. Head on over to 247sports, the Florida Gator page. Always thank you, Jacob. We'll talk again soon, bud. Always good being on, Ryan. Thank you again. Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. 9 o'clock hour has arrived in the city of Jacksonville on a Friday evening. Closing out the week here with you. Thank you for being with us on Hacker After Dark. Coming up in less than 10 minutes, Jason Fitzgerald. Overthecap.com will kind of lay out the blueprint for the Jaguar offseason. You realize the Jaguars now have the 12th best cap situation in the NFL after restructuring all these deals. 
They find themselves about $16 million under the cap once they release Shaq Griffin. That'll go up to about $28, $29 million under the cap. So the cap situation looking pretty good right now for the Jacksonville Jaguars. So we'll do that. Also, Andrew Gibson of the Frangie Show. He's got another River City Hardball program coming up on Sunday. We will talk to him about that and about the world of Major League Baseball coming up in about 25 minutes. Boy, this story in Baltimore is insane. So the Ravens GM, Eric DaCosta, talking to media at the Combine, was talking about his current crop of wide receivers. He was saying, quote, if I had an answer, that would probably mean I would have better wide receivers. We're going to keep swinging in response to why Baltimore doesn't have very good production at the wide receiver position. Rashad Bateman, a current Raven wide receiver, saw this quote on Twitter and wanted to respond to his general manager. He says, how about you play to your player's strength and stop pointing the finger at us and Lamar? Blame the one you let do this. We take the heat 24-7 and keep us healthy. Care about us and see what happened. Ain't no promises, though. Tired of y'all lying and capping on players. For no reason. Whoa. Wow. Very interesting response by Rashad Bateman to his general manager. Interesting offseason in Baltimore. They have no answer with Lamar Jackson yet, and now you got what stars you have at wide receiver, which aren't very many. Not happy at some of the comments from their general manager. We are 10 days away from free agency. We've talked so much about Arden Key, Jawan Taylor, and Evan Ingram. We'll continue those conversations, but there's a lot more Jaguars that are scheduled to hit the market in 10 days, two of which play the same position Evan Ingram does. Tight end Dan Arnold, tight end Chris Manhurts. All indications are Arnold's probably going to get a decent deal on the open market. Would be very surprised if Dan Arnold is back here in Jacksonville. Chris Manhurts, older player, be one of the older veterans on the team here in Jacksonville. Good blocking tight end, can catch a pass or two if need be. I hope the Jaguars re-sign Manhurts. And then maybe draft a tight end. If you have Evan Ingram, Chris Manhurts, a rookie, and then Luke Farrell, I'm okay with that. I don't want to lose both Arnold and Manhurts. I think you need to re-sign at least one of those guys. And if you re-sign one of those guys, I think you'll be in reasonably good shape. Quickly, how about this story out of New York with Daniel Jones? Reports out that he and his uh, camp, his agent, are looking for contract in excess of $45 million a year. For Daniel Jones, reportedly the Giants have offered a contract in the range of $35 to $39 million a year. Again, for Daniel Jones, imagine what Trevor Lawrence is going to cost. And that'll be the conversation next offseason. Again, as we've been talking about, pay special attention to what Herbert gets in L.A. and what Burrow gets in Cincinnati. That'll be a very good gauge for what Trevor Lawrence is going to want to get here in Jacksonville. Coming up next, let's play out a blueprint for the Jaguar offseason. Overthecap.com is the website. Jason Fitzgerald 
is the founder. Let's talk Evan Ingram, Arden Key, Jawan Taylor, and more. With over the caps, Jason Fitzgerald on a Friday night edition of Hacker After Dark, 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, the home of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and we are glad you are with us. The NFL Scouting Combine going on this week up in Indianapolis, and of course NFL Free Agency less than two weeks away. Negotiations can begin on Monday, March 13th. Penn can meet paper on Wednesday, March 15th. Let's go to a man that knows all about the salary cap for every NFL team. It's what he does. He runs a terrific website, overthecap.com. His name is Jason Fitzgerald, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Jason, how we doing? I'm pretty good today. Hey, Jason, always appreciate the time, particularly now, man. I know how busy you are this time of year. All right, let's dive right in. The Jaguars miraculously have shaved $40 million or so off their salary cap with restructuring of contracts in the last, oh, 48 hours. Uh, how was Trent Baalke able to get under the cap, I guess, so quickly, Jason? Well, you know, they, they had a lot of contracts of players who had uh, pretty large cap hits this year. Um, you know, Christian Kirk, Brent Sheriff, the, those kind of players. And what they were able to do was to go in there and take their salaries for this year that were also pretty high. Uh, convert those to bonuses and prorate them over the course of the contract. The NFL allows you to basically take bonus money that you give to a player and divide it over the entire term of the contract up to a maximum of five years. Uh, so in Jacksonville's case, what they did is they, they actually added some what are called dummy years to a contractor, years that don't actually exist, but you can kind of dump money in there anyway for salary cap purposes. Uh, so that's what they did with a couple of players so far. And, you know, now they're under the cap, and now the question is just how far are they going to push it this year? I would think pretty far uh, based on, you know, the the way that they got to the playoffs last year and the, uh, you know, upside that you have with the quarterback. Um, but, you know, you wait to see uh, how many other players they do this with. You know, the interesting thing is the four guys that have reportedly done this, Oluwakin, and then today Kirk, Zay Jones, and Brandon Sheriff, all guys that got big money last year, did they necessarily need to do this? Are they doing this to help out the team? Take us through that process. Did the players need to do it, you mean? Yeah, I mean, um, did, did the players, I mean, they had to agree to it, obviously, but the, this helps the team for 2023. So, yeah, it helps the team for 2023. Typically, when the, the players first negotiate their deals, they, they give the right to the team to be able to do this. Uh, in this case, it was a little bit different because they added some void years on there, so they did probably have to get them to agree to it. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it really doesn't change much for them. They're still going to earn the same amount of money. Um, in the case of Zay Jones, his salary, actually his salary was probably guaranteed already for the year as well. Um, you know, so it it's, doesn't really impact them either way, but it, it certainly helps the team out because it gives them more flexibility for the year. Jason Fitzgerald, OverTheCap.com, here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Another deal that got done over the weekend, Roy Robertson-Harris. Now the thought here was that he might be a cap casualty to save against the cap. Yet all of a sudden, Jason, we find out he signs a three-year, $30 million extension 
which apparently also clears up some more money for 2023. Again, I don't really understand that. Walk us through that process if you could. So that'll be the same thing. So on his prior contract, he was scheduled to count for about $10 million on the salary cap. The reason most people thought he might be a cap casualty is because it would have opened up about $8 million in cap room had they released him. Uh, instead, they went with the option of extending him. Um, and what they were able to do with that, again, is something similar, where most of the salary you pay him this year will be paid in the form of a bonus. And that'll let them kind of divide that charge among across uh, five seasons. So, you know, that they can probably keep him on the team. And instead of having him at a $10 million cap charge, uh, I don't have the full numbers for him yet, but, you know, probably at like a $5 million, $6 million cap charge. So I think they probably looked at that as a no brainer to uh, kind of keep him on board if they could get him in at that figure. You know, you look at deals like this, Jason. Obviously, everybody a year from now here will be talking about a Trevor Lawrence contract extension. How does moving this money forward and projecting it out over four and five years, what will that do to a Trevor Lawrence extension next year? Uh, it probably doesn't impact it too much. You know, I think right now what you're focused on, if you're Jacksonville, is you're just focused on this season. You're focused on making the most um, kind of out of what you have with Lawrence while he's on this rookie deal. Uh, you know, the, the way the veteran contracts end up working um, when you when you look at the Josh Allens and you look at the Patrick Mahomes and Kyler Murray and, you know, Lawrence will probably end up certainly in that type of contract range uh, if he continues to progress this year. Usually you have low cap numbers in the first two to three years uh, of those big extensions, even though the, the extensions might average close to 50 million a year. Uh, the cap numbers are nowhere near that. So Jacksonville really won't have to worry about his cap charges getting pretty high until, you know, something like 2026. And by that time, all these players will be off the team and, you know, you'll have a new set of players that you're bringing in. Jason Fitzgerald over the cap.com here with us on 1010 XL in Jacksonville. Jason, before we go any further, I want to ask you about the impending free agents for the Jaguars. I know what OverTheCap.com is. I love it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do as well. For the ones that are listening that maybe are not familiar, briefly explain that website and what you guys do. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we track the salary cap positions of every team in the NFL. That's the, that's the main thing that we do. So if you pop on the OTC, you can check out what we have for the salary cap numbers for every single player in the league. Uh, we have the salary cap positions for every team in the league. And we will break down where every team's or every player's contract ranks uh, within their position. So that can give you an idea when you're looking towards free agency. If we don't do a projection on the player, um, you know, you can at, at the very least look at the market for a specific position and say, okay, you know, he probably belongs somewhere in this range. And it gives you an idea as to, you know, what your free agents might be looking for if they want to uh, remain on the team. Jason, there's three guys that Jaguar fans have been very curious in since the season ended. We'll begin with Arden Key. Arden Key signed a one-year, one of those prove-it deals here in Jacksonville, and he basically did prove it. He was very good at times last year. Uh, certainly a guy that probably is going to command some money on the open market. He said publicly he'd like to stay here in Jacksonville. How financially feasible would it be at this point for the Jaguars to bring Arden Key back? It probably depends on what he's looking for. You know, the, the Jaguars have other players kind of at that position. Uh, you know, he played, I think, probably about 40% of the snaps for them last year. He's more of a rotational guy. Um, my guess is if he would sign for something in that 
six, seven, eight million dollar year range, he'd probably, you know, stick in Jacksonville. I think if he's looking more along the lines of uh, nine, 10, 11 million, which is also possible um, for him to get if you have a team that's real bullish on him, uh, I think then he would leave in free agency. And th- this is not a great year for free agents. So that money might be out there for players like him that, you know, normally wouldn't project anywhere near the top of a market. Uh, but he might be looked at as pretty valuable just because there's a, a lack of free agents this year. Jason Fitzgerald over the cap.com. All right. The two big ones will begin with Jawan Taylor. Uh, it does not look like the franchise tag is going to happen there. That would be 18 million plus the question here in Jacksonville. Is it worth bringing Jawan Taylor back when you do have Walker Little on the roster and you get Cam Robinson back from injury. That's the assumption anyway. What does the market look like at right tackle, Jason, and how much money could Jawan Taylor get if he hits free agency? Uh, I think if he hits free agency, he is probably going to be looking at a deal that's in that $16 million a year range, $15, $16 million a year. Um, you know, I think he established himself this year in particular as a pretty solid right tackle we've seen the numbers for right tackles increase. Uh, and I think he would be right at that, right at that tail end of like those highest paid players. And again, you know, you're talking about free agency, you're talking about teams that might have some cap room, uh, like the Chicago bears, teams like that, that are going to be very desperate for help. And that can push a market for a player like that up pretty high. So I, I think he'll be probably in that range, 15, 16, 17, um, a year. Yeah, that's good money for Jawan Taylor. He's played every snap, every game as a Jacksonville Jaguar. He started every game in four years here. It's certainly an accomplishment. We'll see if the Jaguars can do something to bring him back. And then the big one, I guess, is Evan Ingram, right? That's the one everybody wants back here in Jacksonville. A little bit of age. He's going to be 29 uh, before the season gets underway next year. So you take that into account a little bit, I suppose. But uh, Trent Baalke has basically gone on record. said, look, He's probably not leaving. Whether we get a deal with him done by March 7th or not, if we can put the franchise tag on him at that point. So it appears Evan Ingram, even though he wants to be back in Jacksonville, that looks like the direction it's headed right now. Yeah, I, I think that's probably how that will end up as well. Um, you know, he, he had a very good year after a couple of down seasons with the Giants there. Uh, you know, the franchise tag on that position is not a very high number. So that that's always a possibility for any of those players, you know, we saw a couple of uh, tight ends get tagged last year. Um, You know, I think the market for him, his is a little tricky only because, you know, he went into free agency last year and while he did incredibly well, I think this year, I I don't know how the the league as a whole is going to react to him just based on that time that he had in New York and what you're bringing up about his age. Uh, I'm not sure how much that'll play into it. If you look at just what he did this year, I mean, he fits right in with all this group of players that are making between, I'd say, 12 and 14 million a year uh, is probably where he belongs. And, you know, if they're looking to make this a little bit of a longer relationship to to where he's going to be that safety blanket for uh, Lawrence the next two, three years, I would think that's a player that, you know, maybe you tag and then you get a deal done as the, uh, you know, kind of summer rolls on. Final moments here with Jason Fitzgerald of OverTheCap.com. Jason, I'm curious, a guy like you who does this for a living, Trent Baalke got annihilated last year by a lot of outlets for what he did in free agency with Christian Kirk and Ingram and Zay Jones, Brandon Sheriff, you go to the defensive side, Aluakun, Fadakasi, Darius Williams, etc. 
But, man, he hit, like, home runs on all those guys. All of those guys were, were vital contributors to what the Jaguars did. Just your assessment of general manager Trent Baalke and the job he's done and basically turning around this organization. Well, you know, they, they, they took a lot of risks last year. And when you take a lot of risks in free agency, a lot of times it doesn't pan out. Uh, it worked out pretty well for them. So I think you have to give them credit for being able to kind of, I guess, pinpoint free agents that fit the system properly, uh, fit what the coach wanted to do, um, you know, and just went in there and filled voids for them that just allowed them to grow as a football team. You know, you, you're trying to use as many resources as you can while you have a quarterback with potential under contract for just a couple million dollars a year. So I think he approached it the right way, even though some of those contract numbers were kind of eye-popping. You know, I was one of those people saying, wow, what, what are they kind of doing with a couple of those players? But, you know, you're you're in a position as a team to take those risks, and this is the only time you can do it. So I think you have to give him credit for doing that. And, you know, you give them credit for, it seems like, uh, picking the right players to do it with that just fit with what they wanted. Jason, final question. How would you assess free agency as a whole this year? Positions of strength, positions of weakness, the class overall, how do you assess it? Uh, the class overall is poor. I mean, it, this would be the equivalent of, you know, when you have a draft where people just talk about how there's no, like, no real high-end prospects. There's some depth in the second round. There's some depth in the third round. You know, that that's the kind of free agency that this is. Uh, you know, there's a couple of good players at tight end. You have a couple of good players at safety. Um, you know, a couple of good linebackers who will be available, but you know, you, you don't have those kind of top end positions that you're going to see at, uh, you know, wide receiver. Um, yeah, there's good running backs. You have Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs at running back or out there, but you know, running backs don't always, uh, do very well in free agency. Um, you know, just, just the way that that position seems to work out. So you don't really have a lot that's out there. Uh, there's a couple name quarterbacks, but those guys never actually make it. They always get franchise tagged. So it's almost like you just pull those names right off. So I, th I think overall it's more of more depth building uh, this year than really finding like starters or players that you look at and go, okay, yeah, they're, they're really going to change the prospects for a team this year. I think it's going to be more about um, – quantity that you can find uh within free agency rather than you know just the one big name that you end up signing jason fitzgerald founder of overthecap.com that is one of the websites to go to this time of year as free agency less than two weeks away jason know you're very busy man thank you for the time we'll talk again soon anytime Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. You know, we've been so caught up in the NFL Combine, NFL Free Agency, spring training well underway in Major League Baseball. And boy, a giant rule change in the game is really affecting the way the game is played. Is this just a spring training thing or will we see this kind of carryover once the regular season games start? In a couple of weeks, let's go to Andrew Gibson. You get him every afternoon on the Franzi Show. He's also the host of River City Hardball. Episode 2 of that program will be Sunday morning at 11 a.m. here on 1010XL. Gibby, how we doing, man? What's happening, man? I appreciate you uh, having me on this, this evening. And, uh, yeah, exciting times. Baseball is here. Yeah, no question about it. I want to get to River City Hardball. Your second episode comes up this Sunday. I listened last week, really enjoyed the conversation you had with Brett Myers. I know this week will be very good as well. Before we get to your show, let's talk about your sport. You're a baseball guy at heart. Uh, 
And I got to tell you, Gibby, man, um, you know, people, when you talk about these spring training games, it's not so much the players, not so much the outcomes. It's all about the pitch clock and how that is completely affecting the pace of these games. You are a baseball diehard. What do you make of the pitch clock and how it's been working to this point? I, I love it. So I watched, I sat down and watched uh, the Mets and the Astros the other day. And I, th- this was the first time in, in Major League Baseball I had really sat down to really watch it. I've watched the Braves, but I've been pretty busy with the show and I've been doing a lot of JU baseball stuff. So I haven't really had a chance to, to really sit down until this past week to watch the Mets and the Astros. The pace of it, I absolutely love it because you, you think about it. Frangie and I were talking about this a week or so ago. After you watch a game with the pitch clock and then go back and watch what we were doing before, it's, all, it's one of those things like how have we not gotten to where we are now before, right? Because there was so much uh, downtime. There was so much um, you know, n- needless things that were going on with, with batters and not getting in the box. And for the most part, pitchers are, are ready to go. With the pitch clock, I, I think it's uh, in the pitcher's hands because the pitcher is going to dictate the pace of it. The pitcher is going to be ready to go. A lot of times it's the batter who's not. And, you know, look, there's some guys that have to reinvent themselves. Like Kenley Jansen, a former closer for the Braves, he had this whole ritual routine before he threw a pitch. You can't do that anymore. you got to change it up. And some guys, um, they're just going to have to totally reinvent what they've done up until this point. But I, I think it's a, it's a great change. Look, a lot of people are split on it. I, I'm, for one, love it. Uh, this was from Jason Stark, long time with ESPN. He's with The Athletic now. He said on March 1st, the average game time this spring, two hours and 39 minutes. 2.39. Uh, that is shaved off 22 minutes on average from this point last spring. Um, pitch clock violations per game, you've got one to two. That's not too bad, really. I mean, for an adjustment period, that's what it's going to take. Uh, these guys are going to have to adjust, and they will, I think, adjust to the pitch clock. I heard Aaron Judge, I heard Max Scherzer, they were asked both of them about the pitch clock. Both guys love it. I'm fully on board. Let's see where it goes. 1010XL's Andrew Gibson here with us. Gibby, you're a guy that'll watch a three-hour and 30-minute baseball game and not think anything of it. You watch 162 of them with the Braves every year. But for the non-diehards, the casual or maybe even occasional baseball fans, if you shave 40 to 45 minutes off of these games, I mean, that's good for the sport, right? I think so. I think, um, you know, there are some people that will say, look, uh, baseball is a leisurely sport. It should be three or four hours. If you're going to a baseball game, you've planned out most of your day around that. And, look, I, I tend to think that with this game being what it is and now going to maybe two and a half hours to possibly three, I don't see how that could hurt. Um, to be honest, I wonder if baseball – Seeing what it does, we've got to see where it goes in the regular season, how, how, what the results are. But, Hack, I honestly wonder if baseball will go into more doubleheaders because if you're finishing a game in two hours, some of these games are like 2.05. I mean, some of these games are really short. Um, I wonder if they'll go to more scheduled doubleheaders because if you're finishing a game in two hours and 30 minutes, you've got time for more, right? I mean, you, you've got a another chance uh, if you're baseball to maybe play two games in one day. So, yeah, I think the pace of it, I think the length of the game is something that they've really uh, tried to to improve. And I think they're the, the examples so far, I think they're doing a good job of it. 
Gibby, why now? Not just the pitch clock, but all the other rule changes that have gone on in the last year or two. Baseball was always a purist sport, right? They hated change. They didn't want to see their game altered in any way like we've seen basketball and baseball and, and football altered. Yet all of a sudden, clearly in the last five years, but even so, you know, the last year or two, a lot of different rules have come in, including now the pitch clock, which is completely changing, you know, how we watch the game of baseball why now in 2023 are we seeing all this? I think they've digested the numbers over the last couple of years, the numbers being um, low averages, um, length of games being a little bit too long. I think they finally said, look, we've got to do something about it. Rob Manfred is the commissioner of baseball. He's, he's somebody that's not afraid to tinker a little bit. Uh, he's somebody that, um, you know, Bud Selig, the, the former commissioner before him, really didn't do a whole lot of changes like, like this. Bud Selig was responsible for, uh, you know, the crackdown on steroids for sure. But as far as, like, fundamental changes to the game, Rob Manfred has been at the forefront of this. And, look, I, I was not sure how what to think about a lot of these rule changes. You have to see it first, right? Like, you can hear it on paper and say, oh, I hate that. But once you see it and actually experience it, it's different, right? You have to be able to see it in, in front of you. And I think with, with this year in particular, for example, last year there were so many hits taken away by the shift. They've now banned the shift this year going into baseball. You have to have two infielders on either side of second base, right? You can't have a guy in the outfield. Uh, you can't have an infielder you know, playing deep uh, or shallow right field. Because, look, last year there were so many guys that hit for a low average because mostly because of the shift. Like, Take an example, a guy I always bring up, Corey Seager, used to play for the Dodgers. He took he got a lot of money from the Texas Rangers. He's the shortstop for, for Texas, right? Corey Seager hit like a career low last year. He hit like 240, 245. Uh, I saw the stat. If you took away uh, all the hits that he had taken away by the shift, he would have hit like 285, but he hit 240. And so I think this is an approach for the game to – up averages, um, up scoring, everything else. I think they finally said, look, we've got to do something about this, and they finally are. And with uh, a guy like Matt Olson for the Atlanta Braves, uh, he had numerous, numerous hits last year taken away by the shift. And now I think he's gone like uh, the start of spring training, he was like six for six or seven for seven. So I think it's going to improve and increase offense in the game. Yeah, it's been pretty crazy, you know, the shift and then – Back to the pitch clock. I saw a video yesterday. A pitcher struck out a guy in 20 seconds. He threw three yeah. pitches in 20 seconds and got a strikeout. Quickly, Gibby, because I want to get to River City Hardball, your second episode. Um, is there any concern that the first time a pitcher blows out his arm because he's throwing, you know, three pitches in 20 seconds as opposed to a pitch every 45 seconds? I mean, there's going to be some kickback on this, right? Pitchers, at some point, a pitcher's going to get hurt because of this correct or am I wrong there I don't necessarily know I mean we'll have to see hopefully that doesn't happen but I think for the most part hack I think the pitchers are ready to go I think for you know if you had a pitch clock before you would see pitchers not have much problem with it there are certain guys that that take forever to go and and they've got to change what they're doing but I honestly think for the most part these guys are on the rubber they're staring in they're ready to go Max Scherzer is a prime example here's a guy that he knows his plan. He's ready to attack. I heard um, Dallas Braden, who used to pitch for the Oakland A's, threw a perfect game or a no-hitter, one of those, uh, a couple several years ago now. 
And he said, look, he does a lot of podcasts now. And he said, on the mound, you're either the hunter or the hunted. You're, you're a guy that has to attack the zone. You're a guy that has to be up there and be ready. It's on both guys now. It's on the hitter and the pitcher to be ready to go. And I think that with pitchers, I, I don't necessarily believe there'll be a problem with injuries. We'll have to see how it goes. But I just think for the most part, they're ready to go. Now, for a hitter, I think the hitters, it's already the hardest thing to do in sports, hit a baseball. I, I totally think that. It's, it's so hard. Think about this as a hitter, right? So you, you're facing a guy in the ninth inning, let's say, and this guy's throwing 103, and you have to be ready in about 10 seconds to, be hit, to hit 103. Now he throws the first one right by your belt buckle, and it's 103. You now have to be ready in 8 to 10 seconds for the next one. <laughs> That's, it's already hard enough to hit that. Now you got to be ready to go. Pete Alonzo, former Gator, he said about the pitch clock, man, I, I just don't know what to think. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rushed. I'm nervous. So the first at bat, grounded out, strike out, whatever he did. The very next at bat, he hit a home run. Mm-hmm. So the, these guys are going to adjust. I, I think it'll be just fine, to be honest. Andrew Gibson here with us. All right, Gibby, episode two this Sunday, River City Hardball. You're going to be on at 11 a.m. here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. What can people expect Sunday morning? We've got the bomb squad coming in this week, man. We've got uh, first coast head coach Stephen Barnes and 2024 Florida State baseball commit Hunter Carnes is going to join us, both head coach and player, live in studio, 11 a.m. to lead things off on Sunday morning. First coast is 3-1 and one through four games. Uh, their, their catcher, uh, Hunter Carnes, is one of the best, if not the best, baseball prospects in high school baseball here in Jacksonville. First Coast has played four games, Hack. Hunter Carnes has hit three bombs uh, in those first three games. So uh, those guys uh, are really, really, really good. And I think you might, you might see the, the, the next Buster Posey coming through Jacksonville with Hunter Carnes, and he's going to lead off the show at 11 a.m. on Sunday. And then also we're going to have two college guys uh, come on the sh- show as well uh, from JU and UNF. Uh, first of all, from the, uh, the Dolphins of JU. They just upset Florida this week uh, going over to Gainesville, winning on Wednesday night. We've got Chandler Howard coming in. Chandler is a freshman on this team at JU, and he has hit three home runs already. Uh, his first three home runs, two of the three he's hit against Florida State and Florida. And this is a freshman at JU that's DHing for the most part a left-hand hitter that hit a absolute bomb over the scoreboard against Florida on Tuesday night. It's one of the longest home runs I've ever seen at JU Stadium. So Chandler Howard, a freshman, is coming in as well. And then lastly, we're going to have a, a guy from UNF, a local guy, Cherokee Nichols, played his high school ball at Fletcher. Cherokee has hit two home runs already for UNF, and he is playing and starting in right field for the Ospreys. So Cherokee Nichols is also going to come on as well. UNF uh, has hit a ton of home runs already this year. We're talking to you tonight. Uh, the Ospreys, as of Friday evening, had hit 18 home runs. That is more than Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia in, high, in college baseball. So Florida, U- the University of North Florida here in Jacksonville, is really playing good baseball. They're 4-5, and five, but they've, they've really uh, hit their stride a little bit, I think. And Cherokee Nichols, their right fielder, is going to be on the show as well. If you are a baseball fan, River City Hardball, Sunday morning, 11 a.m. here on 1010XL with Andrew Gibson. That is the spot for you. Gibby, really enjoyed last week. Can't wait for this Sunday. Have a great weekend, my friend. We'll be listening Sunday morning. Hey, man, thanks for the opportunity to be on. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend.
And thank you to my friend Andrew Gibson for joining us tonight here on Hacker After Dark. Again, Gibby's show Sunday morning at 11 a.m., River City Hardball. Be sure and give it a listen. And, yeah, the baseball uh, complexion of the game completely changes with that pitch clock. If you have not seen any of these spring training games, boy, it goes a lot quicker. You're going to be shocked. These games are going 20, 30, 40 minutes shorter than normal games have been going in the past. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if this continues once regular season baseball begins in a couple of weeks. Well, that'll just about do it, not only for a Friday night edition of Hacker After Dark, but for the week. It has been a very busy week here on Hacker After Dark, and we certainly thank you guys for hanging out with us on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Thank you tonight to Andrew Gibson of The Frangie Show and the host of the brand-new River City Hardball program. Thank you to uh, Jacob Rudner, 247sports.com, covering the Florida Gators as the Gators begin spring football tomorrow, spring number two, for Billy Napier and his staff down there in Gainesville. You also heard from my friend, former Jaguar, Pro Bowl offensive tackle Leon Searcy on his thoughts on the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Combine as well. And Jason Fitzgerald, OverTheCap.com, the founder of OverTheCap.com, stopped by tonight to kind of do an off-season to-do list, a checklist, if you will, when it comes to the Jacksonville Jaguars. We'll be back on Monday night, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker, Ryan Green. And Jacksonville, thank you for spending your Friday evening and your week with us right here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have a terrific weekend, everybody, and we will talk to you Monday night beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.